Hello and welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast. My name is Sebastian Richard and I'm glad you could join me tonight. Uh, as tonight we are going to tackle a difficult subject. Uh, I have to be very honest, it's, it's hard for me to talk about, but it is oh so necessary. I'm going to be talking about Christians, depression, and suicide. And I subtitled this teaching, What to Do When Your Faith Fails. So first off, I'd like to offer a disclaimer pertaining to this particular episode. So the disclaimer is, I am not a professional medical doctor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. If you or someone you know is severely depressed, you should urgently seek the help of a qualified professional. And with that out of the way, uh, I just wanted to start by sharing a quote that I find very interesting. Uh, it says, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So in other words, if you're depressed in the world we live in, it's understandable. It is understandable. And yet, in uh, the church of Jesus Christ, in our churches, our local, our local churches, it's one of the most taboo subjects, depression and suicide among believers. We don't hear much about it unless it does happen. It does tend, like when it happens, then they're going to talk about it. But we don't talk about it. We don't talk about um, this as a thing. And yet the statistics, they show us that the, the, the rate of uh, depression, the, the percentage of depressed people, the percentage of people who commit suicide uh, who are part of a church, it's pretty similar to the numbers, the secular numbers out there. So um, it should be something that we talk about more in churches. See, depression... Uh, tends to isolate uh, people when they get depressed. So it causes the sufferer to withdraw from other people. And the stigma that surrounds depression often reinforces the self-isolation. So not only do other people stigmatize those who are depressed, but depressed individuals often believe these misunderstandings about themselves and experience shame. And that is very true. And I'm going to talk about it a little later when I talk, when I share my own experience with depression. And unfortunately, the church, rather than being what it's supposed to be, a place of healing for those who suffer, can become one of the worst places of judgment. In 2014, Lifeway, a Christian, uh, I think it's a Christian website or organization, they surveyed 1,000 pro uh, Protestant pastors about mental illness. And the study found that 74% of those pastors personally knew one or more people who had been diagnosed with depression. And 23% of pastors reported having personally struggled with mental illness themselves. Yet 49% of pastors rarely or never spoke to their church about acute mental illness. So in the absence 
of teachings from the church, many Christians, many believers, have adopted misconceptions about depression. Uh, and they've adopted these misconceptions instead of getting their idea from a, a holy, not a holy, but a, a good biblical perspective. They've adopted the idea from culture, from the secular. And unfortunately, often when pastors do decide to speak up about depression, it may be to perpetuate the falsehood that, quote unquote, real Christians do not get depressed. And that thought alone to me is depressing. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to give you some statistics. Uh, globally. So those are global statistics. So nearly 800,000 people, 800,000 people, that's almost a million, die by suicide in the world each year, which equates to about one death every 40 seconds. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the world for those who are aged between 15 and 24. 15, that's pretty young. And now for USA statistics, every day, approximately 123 Americans die by suicide. There, and, and, you know, these numbers I'm sharing were before uh, the, the pandemic, right? It was before that. So keep that in mind as I'm sharing these alarming numbers. And these are not church numbers. They're USA numbers in general. But they're still very alarming. And keep in mind that uh, the pandemic only made, made things much worse. There is one death by suicide in the U.S. every 12 minutes. Depression affects 20 to 25 percent. So that's one out, of, uh, one out of four people of Americans aged 18 and over in a given year. Suicide takes the lives of over 44,965 Americans every year. An estimated quarter million people each year become suicide survivors. So a person they know has committed suicide and they're left on the outside grieving. There, was, there is one suicide for every estimated 25 suicide attempts. So for every 25 suicide attempts, there is one person who actually does it. And in the elderly, that's very troubling. In the elderly, there is one suicide for every four attempts. And the finally, the highest suicide rate in the United States are among whites or Caucasians, American Indians, and Alaska Natives. And, and I, I think it's interesting that Alaska is there because Maybe lack of sunlight also contributes to this, uh, the mood disorder. We know that sunlight is, uh, we need sunlight to live. I mean, it's very healthy to have sunlight, but in Alaska, they have less. So that could explain partly why there's more suicides in Alaska. Also, life up there, uh, up north, that far is very hard, very uh, difficult. So that could also explain it. So it mentions also the natives. Native Americans. And uh, speaking of natives, I want to mention what stirred up this desire for me to speak up this week, speak up today about um, Christians, depression, and suicide. Uh, 
Uh, this week, uh, the world of sports was shaken by a big news. Uh, as you know, I'm origina originally from Montreal. And uh, there was news that uh, a famous uh, hockey player from Montreal, uh, it wasn't officially that. So mind you, I'm not saying it was officially depression. But from uh, what we gathered from the news media, it seemed to be official that one of their players um, ha had uh, basically taken a leave of absence from the team to, uh, to seek some help. Uh, and it's a very sensitive topic, but uh, I still want to share a video about it with uh, you guys, if you would allow me. Uh, so here's the video. The hockey world was shocked this morning with the news that goaltender Carey Price was entering the voluntary NHL-NHLPA player assistance program. This comes less than a week before the start of the NHL season. Now, Price himself has not spoken on the matter, but his wife Angela posted this on Instagram, saying her husband put, quote, mental health first. Not just by saying it, but by showing up and doing the work to get better. Canadians GM Mark Bergevin spoke to the media not long after the news broke and admitted that he did not see this coming. He was definitely caught off guard. You know, the elephant in the room, sometimes we don't say anything and, and it's very personal, but I, I salute and, and I'm glad they did. I think every general manager, every ownership wants guys to come out if they need help, seek it and move on and have a life because your hockey career lasts so many years, but you have the rest of your life, your kids, your family. That's what, that's the most important thing. And when asked about his relationship with his star goaltender, Bergevin couldn't hold back his emotions. It's been a... Yeah, I know it's... It's hard. Bergevin also added that in the past, a player asking for help would have been looked upon as weak. But perhaps more players who are in need of assistance will follow Carey Price's lead. So yes, uh, the news uh, shook the province of Quebec, and and I'm I'm not. I just want to maybe I shouldn't say that, but uh, I'm not a Montreal Canadiens fan. Uh, my team is the Colorado Avalanche, so I never really liked the Canadians. But that said, I've always really, really loved and respected Carey Price as a hockey player. Uh, because I am a hockey fan, first and foremost, and uh, as a human being. Uh, those who, those, most people might not know this, but Carey Price has, um, has, I don't remember him talking openly about his faith, but uh, he does wear on his mask, John 316 is printed on his mask. And uh, I, from an article I read, uh, at one time, I remember it said that he, he liked to listen to sermons uh, when he would be uh, on the on the plane going to and fro uh, on the road. So um, obviously, the news shook the hockey world. The news shook the fans of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, but, you know, as a Christian, I, I was really and as a Christian who has experienced depression multiple times. Uh, my heart really goes out to Carey Price and to his family, to his wife, to his children. And um, prayers uh, are always appreciated. He is a brother. And uh, for me, it, it really it really touched me. And the Lord used it as a catalyst for me to obey. 
And what do I mean by that is for over a year now, I kept telling Elizabeth, I said, you know, we have to do an, maybe even more than that, maybe a year and a half or two years. I kept telling Elizabeth, I have to do an episode on depression. I have to do an, an episode on depression. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the church about depression. I have to address this issue. And I kept putting it back and putting it back. There was always something more important or, or so I thought or, and um, well, that would, that was the, the catalyst this week. I was like, as soon as I saw the news, uh, the Lord just grabbed my heart and, and uh, I was like, I have to do it this week. I have to talk about it this week. And that's the thing, huh? depression. And one of the greatest uh, stigmas of depression is that people don't talk about it and especially Christians. And I'm going to, I'm going to cover that. I'm going to cover the reasons why we don't uh, talk about it as believers. Uh, there's a quote I found about melancholy. Uh, I thought it was very insightful, very spot on. It's from Moliere, the French writer, Moliere. He said, life is a tragedy to those who feel and a comedy to those who think. And I, I have been privy uh, to both. <laughs> uh, you see, before my 30s, I, was, I felt a lot. It was all, every, I felt everything. I felt everything. And man, too much, too much. And it was a tragedy for me. But then uh, when I entered in my, into my 30s, I began thinking more. And uh, that, in a way, was uh, uh, a great help to uh, get over my depressions. Doesn't mean I didn't have any more, but they were uh, more spaced out. Uh, my episodes with melancholy were more um, rare. So I just thought that quote was interesting. So I'm gonna tell you my own story right now, how, uh, what I lived. So as you know, so those who've been listening to the Thriving on Purpose uh, broadcast for a while, those were our, our uh, usual listeners, know that, um, I came from a difficult background, difficult family background. My parents divorced twice. Uh, I moved a lot when I was a kid. There was a lot of instability, uh, great instability, uh, which uh, basically caused some trauma in my life. And of course, uh, trauma is never good. Uh, if you're a believer, you know that. Uh, it can cause all kinds of problems. And it really did for me. Uh, it, it, it did quite a number on me. So having a very unstable childhood, teens, uh, grew up in poverty, a lot of, a lot of problems related with that. Uh, I was a very shy uh, kid in high school. I didn't adapt well to all those moves. So I was bullied a lot. Um, very, very, um, I kept to myself as much as possible. Uh, it, it didn't go well for me. And I developed in my late teens, I, would, I could even say it, 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 the onset was maybe around 14, 15 years old. Uh, depressive moods, uh, anxiety, much anxiety. And uh, it followed me all throughout my, my, uh, my 20s. And uh, a lot of those uh, depressions were quite severe. Uh, I needed to seek help, medical help. Uh, at the time, I didn't know better. I didn't have any idea what to do with that. I didn't have a support system around me. I didn't have uh, gifted counselors who could help me. Uh, I was pretty much on my own. My parents didn't know what to do with that much. Uh, 
they, they, they loved me, but they didn't know how to help me. And so I used the more traditional route of getting medications with all the side effects and the problems that those caused. And I don't even think, I, I mean, every time I was on medication, nothing really helped. And at my lowest point in my depression, it was in my, or I would think my early, maybe my early 20s, mid-20s, maybe, 24, around that, around that age. Uh, at, the, at the lowest point in my depressive state, uh, I would uh, uh, print out Bible verses on eight, eight, uh, on normal letter size paper. I would I would just put it all over my room. Uh, I was still living uh, with my mother at the time, and and I would just put it all over my room. And I kept trying to read those passages every day, the Bible passages that were positive that 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 would uh, help me to put my focus and trust in God in, in this uh, difficult time. And it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't really working. See, uh, back then I didn't understand. I didn't know. I wasn't taught that in church to decree and declare Bible verses that that you needed to sh to say them out loud for them to build up your faith and to do to do it repetitively in the course of a day, uh, not just to read them on a wall in silence. Uh, so that didn't really help the situation. Uh, my intentions were, of course, to get out of it. And nobody, nobody who's in the depressed states uh, wants to stay there. Although there can be a uh, a sickening uh, when you get really, really down. And I remember feeling those moods. And it's funny because when you, when I talk about this today, when I'm talking to you, I'm being very candid tonight. So when I talk about this mood I was in today. It's almost as if I'm talking about an out-of-body experience or as if I'm talking about some other guy I used to know or some other life I used to be in. Depress depression can be a very tight prison. And when you're not in it and you look back, you think back on how you felt, uh, it, it's kind of strange. Uh, so today I, I'm, uh, I'm free from it. Thank God I've been free from it for a few years um, because I the big part for me, for me, was when God showed me my purpose, when I finally found my, my purpose on the earth. That's why I found it thriving on purpose. Uh, it was such a huge blessing and catalyst in my life uh, uh, that it, it blessed me in that way that um, now I do have sometimes once in a while, you know, like everybody else, uh, days when you're blue, you know, but being blue is nothing like a full-blown depression. And what I was going to say earlier is that my worst state back, back then, my worst, uh, I had put these Bible verses all over my wall and I would, I would push myself out of bed in the morning, like literally push myself out of bed. It, it was an excruciating experience just to get up, brush my teeth, and go to work. And what I would do when I would finish my workday is I would go crash in bed and stare at the ceiling. And uh, the thoughts were so dark. They were, it was such a dark place. And th there was some demonic attachment there. I'm not going to lie to you. Now, today, I understand that. Back then, I didn't. See, back then, I thought I was 
how can I, how can I, it's hard for me to, to talk about this, but because I, I want to be, I don't want to be misunderstood. That's the main key to that. I don't want to be misunderstood. So back then I thought I was just fighting my own flesh, my own inclinations. And I knew, I knew the devil might be out like trying to get me there. Like I knew there was some of that going on, but I knew nothing of demonization. I knew nothing of del needing deliverance. Uh, I knew, I didn't know it. Uh, any of these things. So I, I thought I was kind of like just fighting my own black thoughts that Satan might have, might be whispering in my ear, but that, that was it. That was just about it. But the thoughts were dark and, and they were, uh, uh, they would, they would bring me to suicidal thoughts multiple times a day. And uh, at one point I came very, very close. I remember I was, uh, I was in my room and everything was so dark that I thought the only way out was through death. And uh, I, uh, I had a knife and I wanted to use it on my own neck. But of course, you're, you're, like, the mind races. And uh, so you're in a struggle. There's, there's the demons on one side wanting you to do it. There's the Holy Spirit holding you or trying to hold you. And there's your own thoughts in, in your own self in, in kind of caught in the middle. And I remember the Holy Spirit at that time to, to, to say literally saved me with one thought. And the thought was, if I do this, my mom's going to find me when she gets back from work. And I can't do that to her. She doesn't deserve this. That was the only thing. It wasn't a Bible verse. Uh, it wasn't the thought of being judged by God when I when I got to heaven. It wasn't that. It, it, it was really the thought of causing that much pain to my mother. And that's why I didn't do it. Like I said, I'm very candid right now. This is not something I'm enjoying. Uh, I don't want to, I don't like talking about this stuff. But I, I want you guys to really understand that being a born-again Christian doesn't mean you're not susceptible or that you cannot be depressed. Uh, and we're going to dive in deeper about this. I'm going to give you examples from the Bible, examples from history. But the Holy Ghost, God, in His grace, saved me with that one thought. I mean, the Lord knows us better than anyone. He knows what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And that was the thought that prevented me from doing it. That was the closest, the time I came the closest to doing it. And I'm not saying I didn't have other thoughts. Uh, they were fleeting. Oftentimes, I would just like, you know, kind of like push them aside when they 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 come to you, these thoughts. You, you push them aside. You're like, you reason with yourself. You're like, I can't. I, I shouldn't do this. This is crazy. Um, but that time I, I was very, very, very close to doing it. And uh, praise God, he saved me. And God uh, had other plans for me thank, uh, and praise him for that. Uh, the devil probably had an inkling of what God would want to use me for. Because, I, you know, there's a saying that says uh, the devil wouldn't be attacking you so hard if you didn't have a special purpose in God's plan. In other words, it, the devil attacks those people so hard 
when he knows the, the potential impact they can have. So if you're suffering from depression right now, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and you're suffering from depression, tell yourself that the devil wouldn't be attacking me so hard if I couldn't do damage to his kingdom of darkness, if I didn't have the potential to impact my fellow man in a huge way, the devil wouldn't be wasting his time with me so much. And speaking of the devil, I wanted to talk about the noonday demon. The noonday demon, that's an expression. There's even a book on depression that is probably one of the best sellers on the subject called The Noonday Demon. It was written by, I have it in my library. I, I remember buying it back in my 20s when I wanted answers. Um, it was an atlas of depression. The Noonday Demon, I forget the author. Big brick, huge, like maybe close to 800 pages, I think. A huge book, big book, maybe 600. So the Noonday Demon, uh, or also called the Midday Demon or Meridian Demon, is used as a personification and synonym of Akedia or Asidia. I don't know how to pronounce it. It indicates a demonic figure thought to be active at the noon hour, which inclines its, vis its victims, which were usually monastic, so monks, to a restlessness, excitability, and inattention to one's duties. So back then, the monks, uh, when one was uh, restless, excitable, or didn't want the monastic life anymore, where they thought of maybe going back to the world and, and you know, leaving the monastic life, they called that the noonday demon. And in fact, it was such a big deal that, that what they deemed to be a demon, that it used to be listed as the eighth deadly sin. You know, there's seven deadly sins in the Catholic Church. Well, that, that uh, Akedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, A -C -E -D -I, -A, I don't know how to pronounce this, I'm, I'm French, right? Well, they used to... <laughs> They, they used to list it as one of the deadly sins. So depression, uh, that type of, of, of listless feeling, this, um, this restlessness and this, uh, what they call the noonday demon, which could lead to depression, they, they used to list it as a sin. And they took it from the Bible, Psalm 91.6, in the Bible, uh, which says uh, there's there are a lot of different versions, but I have it here. So in the Catholic version, the Dwey Rhymes translation of the Old Testament, uh, it, it is, um, oh, geez. Anyway, it's called, uh, uh, they personified it in their versions as Daemonium Meridianium. Um so, yeah, so it's basically taken from uh, Psalm 90, 96, which says, uh, the destruction that wasteth at noonday. The destruction that wasteth at noonday. But that's from the King James. But in their versions, it seemed to be more like a, an entity that, that wasted at, at noonday. So they took it from there. Uh, so, yeah, so they called it that. And uh, in, in French, we call it the démon du midi. And uh, it's funny because it's also associated, associated with uh, the midlife crisis. And I did a powerful episode on the midlife crisis a while back. Um, 
not episode, but teachings, a series of two teachings that's available on our website at thrivingonpurpose.com. It was titled Midlife Crisis or Midlife Calling. And in those this two-part teaching, I was addressing the midlife crisis. I was addressing the, the depression that can uh, come upon a man or a woman when they reach midlife and what that actually means. And it's my personal conviction that a midlife crisis is also a midlife calling. So it's a time that is used by God. This dissatisfaction, this dissatisfaction this that is used by God to call you into purpose. And some people heed the call. They answer the call. They find the calling and they answer the caller. For some other people, they don't. So they prefer going to buy a Corvette and maybe uh, hooking up with their 19-year-old secretary instead. So midlife crisis or midlife calling, that was a very powerful teaching I did. Uh, so which I'm linking basically with the, uh, the noonday demon. Because in French, le démon du midi is not quite used, in Quebec anyway, it wasn't quite used the same way. When we said noonday demon in, in Quebec, we meant midlife crisis because midlife is basically the equivalent of noonday. When you calculate, like noon is the middle of the day, right? Midday. So midlife, démon du midi. Anyway, uh, so I just wanted to put that. But it's interesting to note that for those monks, they saw it as a sin to get into that state, to that that either that um, restless or um, the, the desire for more, the desire where you question everything, uh, or you get depressed. So I wanted to talk next about known precedents in the Bible because see the Bible is our roadmap, and there's a lot to be gained in the scriptures about depression. I remember it. this this information I'm giving you right now really, strangely enough, helped me to feel less alone when I was uh, feeling the, the total isolation of depression, knowing that some of the great men uh, of the Bible had suffered in similar fashion was a source of encouragement for me. I was like, well, I'm not alone because so-and-so had to go through that and so-and-so, and whoops, well, I'm just gonna name them. <laughs> So first, Job. Job, of course, I mean, with everything he lost, any sane man would fall into a depressive state. I mean, it's only normal and natural. There's only so much a human being can withstand. And Job was depressed. I mean, you've read, you've read the book and the poor man, what he suffered was just absolutely horrendous. But in Job chapter 6, verses 8 and 10, here's what he says. If only my one request were answered, if only God would grant me the fulfillment of my only hope, that God would be willing to crush me, to kill me, that God would release his hand and cut me off, at least then I would have a crumb of consolation, one source of joy in the midst of this relentless agony. I never denied the words of the Holy One in my pain. So we can only see from this passage just how much suffering and agony. Like Job just wanted it over. It was like, instead of making me go through this, what does he just kill me? This is too much. 
So he longed for death. Another one longed for death, Moses. Moses was a great leader, probably uh, after Jesus, the biggest leader in, in the whole history of the scriptures. And oftentimes he was crushed under the weight of leadership of the Israelite people because they were so stiff-necked. It was, it was such a hard people to, to lead. We read in Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 to 15, it, it says this. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And when the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, Moses was also displeased. So they were again complaining. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of this entire people on me? In other words, what have I done to you that you give me these people to lead? Did I conceive this entire people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your arms as a foster father bears a nursing child to the land that you swore to their fathers? From where shall I get meat to give this entire people? So they were complaining they didn't have meat. For they cry to me, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear this entire people alone because it is too heavy for me. But if you're going to deal with me like this, then kill me immediately. If I have found favor in your sight, then do not let them uh, do not let me see my trouble. So Moses, in this instance, asked God for death because of the burden that he had on his shoulders. Now that is intense. Huge burden for Moses. Another one I didn't jot down here that I should have was uh, Jeremiah, obviously. Jeremiah suffered tremendously. I mean, it was... Oh, it was so sad, his story. Um, he was somewhat of a reluctant prophet. You know, when he says in the passage, he says, if I abstain from talking, then the words burn inside me and I have to let them out. Because he said, I won't talk because whenever I talk, it's to announce calamity. And then they hate me. So I'm going to I'm going to keep it to myself. But then he says, but then I kept it to myself. And when I when I speak out, they, they just hate me. He was highly troubled, and uh, he wrote the Lamentations as well, right? The Lamentations of the Book of Lamentations of Jeremiah. In French, we even have an expression. It's a word we call the Jeremiade. There's not really an English translation I can give you for that, but Jeremiade. We use the word Jeremiah to to call Jeremiade is a basically a complaint, complaints. They're called Jeremiade. Jeremiads, you could call them. Elijah, Elijah, the prophet, the great prophet. In 1 Kings 19.4, we know what, what happened with Elijah. I mean, he had a tremendous victory on Mount Carmel and against the prophets of Baal, where he uh, put to death after they failed <laughs> to call on Baal, and he successfully called on Yahweh to show up with fire. Uh, 
that proved that Yahweh was the one God in Israel. And then he put the death of the prophets of Baal. But then he learned that uh, Jezebel wanted to put him to death. So he ran away. In 1 Kings 19.4, we read, He journeyed into the desert for one day and then decided to rest beneath the limbs of a broom tree. There he prayed that his life would be over quickly and that he would die there beneath the tree. Elijah said, I'm finished, eternal one. Please end my life here and now. Even though I have failed and I am no better, than my ancestors. So that's that's a depressed state. Like the guy is like, I'm a failure. End my life right here, right now. Another prophet asked for death. It was Jonah. Jonah. We know that Jonah ran away. He was the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to do what the Lord asked of him. He didn't want to go to Nineveh and prophesy what the Lord was going to do to them if they didn't repent. So he ran away. Then God took him, made him get swallowed by this great fish, we are told in the Bible. For three days and three nights, he wasn't there. Then he repented. Uh, you know, that, that could push someone to repentance. So the fish vomited him out on the, on the seashore. And then he got up and he went to Nineveh. Still reluctantly, but he did it. And, uh, and then they all repented. Every single one of them. After Jonah said, in 40 days, if you don't repent, God is going to destroy your city. They all repented. From the smallest to the greatest, uh, everything. Like the king ordered a full um, humiliation of the people with sackcloth and, and, and repenting and all that. So God didn't destroy Nineveh at that time. And uh, Jonah uh, then was like, you see... I knew you wouldn't destroy them. That's why I didn't go. <laughs> That's why I didn't want to go. And then the Lord explained himself. Uh, didn't explain right away, but then uh, Jonah uh, went away from the city. And then he, he, I think, was he in the desert? I don't remember. But then the, the Lord, he sat down and there was sun and it was the sun was scorching. So uh, he sat down and the plant, the Lord ordered a plant to grow. The plant offered him shade. And then the sun scorched the plant and the plant died. And Jonah was in the sun and the sun was scorching him. And, and then he had enough. Well, you know, would I have had enough? Probably. First of all, you run from God. You hop on a ship. They vote you off the ship. They throw you in the ocean. You get swallowed by a great fish in which you stay for three nights, three days and nights. I don't even know how you breathe it in there. So he mustn't, he mustn't have been very strong when he was vomited out. So then he's vomited out. He goes to prophesy, thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to prophesy. The thing's going to happen. And then I'll, I'll, I'll carry on. Like I'll move, you know, just carry on. But no, even there for him as a prophet, he was like, well, I just told them 40 days and you're going to destroy their city. And you didn't do it. Now, I looked like a fool. So he was upset. Really upset. And he had enough. He had enough. All right. I know we're very critical of Jonah. He's one of those Bible characters that we're hard on. Kind of like, uh, I don't know, Job's wife. 
We forget that Job's wife lost 10 kids. Hello. I lost one kid and I can tell you, losing 10, I, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. We're hard with some of these Bible people, people who lived, had a life. We don't always understand what they went through. We don't always try to put ourselves in their shoes. But it's interesting. Jonah, his 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 parkour, like the, the path that he was on, if you look prior to his saying, hey, take my life, I've had enough. So in Jonah 4.3, I didn't read to you the verse, I'm going to read it to you. Jonah 4.3, Jonah says, and now, O Yahweh, please take my soul from me, for better is my death than my life. The plant was dead. He had no more shadow, no more shade. He was under the scorching sun after all that. That was the straw for Jonah. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, basically. That's when he had completely, he was like, I can't do this anymore. And then Yahweh spoke to him and he said, well, you know what? You had pity on that plant that gave you shade. Why wouldn't I have pity on those, was it 400,000 inhabitants in Nineveh or 40,000? I forget. A large number of people who don't know their right from their left. Why wouldn't I have mercy? Multiple women, children, beasts of all kind. Why wouldn't I show mercy? And you're frustrated that a plant died. Of course I would show mercy if they repented. That's what he told them. Anyway, it's not a teaching about Jonah, but you see the point. Of course, there's King David. I mean, King David, you could... I mean, there's so many Psalms that he wrote, uh, probably more than half of which are Psalms of complaints. At least they start off as a complaint. Woe is me, woe is me. I mean, David was obviously a melancholy, someone who struggled. He was a very sensitive soul. It was funny. David has so many qualities. It's amazing. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was a shepherd. He was a writer an author, a poet, a musician. Yeah, I mean, he, the guy was uber gifted. But sometimes with many gifts come many burdens. And he was very burdened. He was a very troubled uh, soul. And we see that in the Psalms. There's so many Psalms where David complains. My, the enemies, they're all always after me, trying to get me this and that. And Oh, Yahweh, please deliver me. And, and, and always, he's a very anguished man. Very, very melancholy. Uh, I could have picked almost any psalm, but the one that caught my attention is Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. This happened after he, his sin found him out. Basically, the prophet uh, Nathan came to him and he, he, he confronted him about the sin with Bathsheba. And then he wrote that psalm. He was, he was in great repentance he was he felt bad about his sin he wrote a lot of great things in psalm 51 but uh, verses 10 to 12 caught my attention he wrote create in me a clean heart O god renew a right spirit within me don't throw me from your presence and don't take your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation uphold me with a willing spirit. I find it very interesting that David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So David is basically telling the Lord, I, 
in, in this sinful state, I, I lost, I lost the, uh, the joy of my salvation, Lord. I lost it. Because when we live in sin, we're not enjoying the joy of our salvation anymore. So he, he, he was in a bad place in his life. He was probably very depressed. Maybe it didn't show, but he was. So he had lost the joy of his salvation. Another uh, uh, Bible character that I wanted to uh, share with you guys is Paul, the Apostle Paul. It's funny because Paul we don't see as, a, as your typical depressed guy. Paul was more like a, a choleric. He was a, a driven. He's a driven guy, ambitious for the kingdom, uh, tough, tough as nails uh, for a small guy. Anyway, by all accounts, he, he, historical accounts, he was probably not a very big man, but he's tough as nails. But this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 caught my attention. Paul says this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. He despaired of life itself. And of course, we know of the great anguish of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, the, the night uh, before his crucifixion. He was in great anguish. Uh, the Lord, though, when you read the account, it's in Matthew, I think, the most detailed account of it, I think. It's very interesting because... Uh, in the account where Jesus is is undergoing the Gethsemane trial difficulties, he is doing a lot of things right that we could use as a model. First of all, he asks for help. He says to his friends, come with me. Peter, James, and John, come. Don't leave me alone. I don't want to be alone at this time. And that's a great thing that we need to do when we are in need of help. When we are in that state, we need to be surrounded by people who love us that by people who are of our best interest at heart. And, and, and Jesus did that. And secondly, what did he do? He sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. He sought, he sought the father, the father's comfort. And it was a, a very hard for Jesus Christ, but he did all the right things. He did all the right things and they worked. He stayed on the path. He did not stray from the path. He stayed on it all the way to the cross. Now, of course, these uh, examples from the Bible, I think, are the best that, that we have. And they're so potent and so um, amazing. But there's also uh, people in church history that went through tremendous depressive episodes. There's Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, one of the fathers of the Reformation. Uh, he suffered from great depressions. Uh, at many times during his life, I remember reading parts of his biography and he was a depressed person. I think it was him. Was it Luther? I think it might've been Luther, but I may be wrong. You guys may correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you've read the, the biographies uh, I'm going to talk about, but I think one day Luther was so depressed. It was really bad. His wife shows up in the morning. She's all dressed up in black uh, as if she was, um, uh, mourning 
just as if she was mourning. And uh, he looks at her, he's like, why are you dressed all in black? It's so gloomy. She says, she basically gave him the answer like, well, I'm mourning you because you're acting like you're dead or something or, or, or something like that. But she, she gave him such a, 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 sh a shock. It like shook him. And after that, he, oh, she says, I'm mourning God. That's what she said. She said, I'm mourning God. He's like, what? Are you crazy, woman? She says, no, I'm mourning God, just like you. You've been acting as if God doesn't exist. So why shouldn't I? And when she gave him that answer, it shook him out of his depression. But I thought that was so good. I think it was Luther. I mean, I hope I'm not wrong. Might have been Spurgeon. I'm not sure. But here's a quote from uh, one of the writings of Luther. He said, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. That's how he felt. And he was candid enough to share it in his writings. Another great man of God that we've all learned to appreciate is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was, of course, a great preacher, but he was a great fan growing up and even all throughout his life. His second favorite book, you might not know this, was uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. That was his favorite book all the way from childhood, all the way to later in his life. And he took a quote from uh, that book and he kind of tweaked it to express his feeling of depression. He, he wrote, he said, there are dungeons beneath the castle of despair, as dreary as the abodes of the lost, and some of us have been in them. Uh, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, you know that the castle of despair is, is, is the worst place where Christian found himself, where he lost, came very close to losing all hope. And... Uh, Spurgeon is very poetic in his writings, and he wrote that. There are dungeons beneath the castle of despair as dreary as the abodes of the lost, and some of us have been in them. And he was referring to himself. In one sermon, Spurgeon said, you may be surrounded with all the comforts of life and yet be in, uh, in wretchedness more gloomy than death if the spirits are depressed. You may have no outward cause, whatever for sorrow, and yet if the mind is dejected, the brightest sunshine will not relieve your gloom. There are times when all our evidences get clouded and all our joys are fled. Though we may still cling to the cross, yet it is with a desperate grasp. Now that expresses the plight of a Christian. Undergoing, undergoing some tremendous pain and suffering. So he's saying, though we may still cling to the cross, yet it is with a desperate grasp. It reminds me when I read that of my own experience, when on the wall of my room, I put all those verses. I was desperately uh, uh, clinging to the cross with a desperate grasp. That's how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. Another uh, well-known Christian, influential Christian, C.S. Lewis, the great author, after his wife died of cancer, 
just three years after they were married. He wrote, he wrote of his experience in a book called A Grief Observed, where he talks about grief. And, and he, he desired an answer or some kind of sign from God in that passage. And don't we all, when we're in that state, we just want, like, we just want God to, 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 to hug us or to give us a sign or to, to feel physically the presence of the Spirit of God. And yet we're so far from Him in, in those days. And it's really when you're in that dark place, you cannot forget His promises. You cannot forget His promises. But here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. We can feel the pain that he was going through. Very deep, deep, deep pain. C.S. Lewis struggled to connect with God during this difficult time, these difficult days. To focus, to focus his heart and mind on God, like many of us try to do in those times. Uh, so in the same book, he said this uh, of, of his suffering. He wrote, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. <coughs> Sorry. So he, he's comparing it to a trial. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. And when it seemed to him that God wasn't responding, so when C.S. Lewis felt that God wasn't responding, he said this, and I think that's also very, you, you can feel the pain. Knock, and it shall be opened. But does the knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? That's what he wrote. But does the knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? I mean, when you feel in the clutches, when you're feeling like you're in the clutches of depression, that's how we feel. Like we're knocking and we're knocking. We're like, why isn't God answering? We feel so far from God, so far from God. And so I know... What some of you are going through, I felt that, uh, and I'm sharing these things, not, not to be gloomy, but to show you that you're not alone, to show you that you're not alone, because the sickening isolation that we feel when we're depressed, Satan uses it against us to show us that we're alone. See, you're alone. You're not like the rest of the other people. You're, you're, you're shunned. You're this. You're that. He makes us feel so crazy that we feel like we shouldn't even re-enter society or be close to people because we're so abnormal. That's how he makes us feel. 
And yet look at all these cases from the scriptures, from history. Another one who suffered great, great, great depressions all throughout his life. President Abraham Lincoln. One of the most well-known quotes of President Lincoln about his depression. When he was younger, I think he was in his 20s. Here's what he said. I think he wrote to a friend. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. So he's basically saying, I don't see how I'm going to get out of this dark tunnel. I just don't see how. And that's how we feel when we're in that state, when we're in that deep pit. We feel like that. Mother Teresa was one of the most kind-hearted people. One of the uh, most kind-hearted and uh, loving people ever in, in Christian history. She wrote this, and I thought it was very insightful, very interesting. With regard to the feeling of loneliness, of abandonment, of not being wanted, of darkness of the soul. It is a state well known by spiritual writers and directors of conscience. This is willed by God in order to attach, to attach us to him alone, an antidote to our external activities, and also, like temptation, a way of keeping us humble in the midst of applauses, publicity, praises, appreciation, etc., and success. So she thought... That was her philosophy, that God brought this feeling of this desperation upon us, upon people, so that we would turn to him with more, um, to try to attach ourselves more to him so we would make it through. It was a way to humble us. But I don't think God is the causer of pain on his children. Uh, and I go in detail uh, about debunking this philosophy. Uh, I, does he correct us? Yes. Can he sometimes spank us? Absolutely. A spanking from the Lord is sometimes necessary on his children. But I, I don't think that God is into the, I'm going to cause them pain to make them holier kind of thing. There's, there's a process. Life itself, the fallen world we live in itself, Trust me, it's going to test your patience. It's going to test your virtue. It's going to test a lot of things. He doesn't even need to implicate himself. Like there's so much going on around us that he uses it. He uses it when it shows up. But I don't think he always causes it. And only rarely if he ever does. That's my philosophy. Anyway, I won't get too much into that right now. So I wanted to now address the causes, the possible causes of depression in believers. And of course, you know, we're believers, we're Christians, we love the Lord, we are born again, we have a new spirit within us, new dispositions, and we are new creatures, but we are still human, and we are still um, vulnerable to all that humanity offers, the good and the bad. 
So the causes of depression in believers I listed here, and it's not exhaustive. There's probably some I forgot, but grief is one of them. So loss, uh, but all kinds of grief and not just, not just uh, mourning a loved one. Obviously mourning a loved one is high on the, the, the list, very high. Uh, so grief, loss, it, it, it could be, of course, loved ones when you, you mourn, but it could be also loss of a job. Uh, loss of health, loss of, I don't know, if, if you lose your house in a fire or a flood, these are losses as well. This could cause you to be depressed. Loneliness, loneliness, struggling with being lonely uh, can uh, brings a person, because it, it is said to keep a, uh, a human being in good, strong mental health, the average human being needs to see two to three people every day. So we need human contact in order to stay sane mentally. So loneliness, of course, is it would bring about possibly uh, bouts with mental illness. It's understandable. We're not, we're not creatures that are made to live lonely, isolated from others. So even the most... Uh, the biggest hermits among us need other people. We need human beings. It is not good for man to be alone. And God made Eve, right? So two to three people a day to keep a healthy mental outlook. Criticism, haters, bullying. These things can definitely uh, bring about depressive moods. Uh, there's even when, when these things get out of hand, it can even become gang stalking and gang stalking is a form of witchcraft in which uh, a believer is targeted. I mean, I'm not an expert on gang stalking and fortunately, thank God it's never happened to me, but but it's hap it happens online sometimes. It happens online gang stalking where, where people will bully an individual online and all like basically send hate and, and hate posts and, and attack the person. But gang stalking, uh, I heard some people who went through it. It's a horrific experience. Uh, basically, if a Christian is targeted, they're going to go out and they're going to walk about, let's say they go shopping at a mall. And they're at the mall and minding their own business, going from store to store, and they're going to meet people. They're just going to stare them down and as they pass by, insult them or say um, uh, curses on them. And you're like, whoa, what was that? Like when it happens once, you know, you're out, you're out at the mall. It happens once. You're like, okay, well, that guy was had, had a problem with a, a demon, obviously. His demon didn't like my Holy Ghost, you know. But when you're out at the mall for a couple of hours and it happens three, four times with different individuals, uh, you're like, whoa, whoa, what is going on? That is uh, witchcraft gang stalking. It is, it is a, an awful phenomenon uh, that uh, Satanists and Luciferians do to try to bring down a Christian when he's targeted. It's an awful practice. Uh, stagnation. So that's another one I'm going to talk about. Uh, stagnation or not being in your purpose. That one to me was huge. It was huge. When you, you live a, a life 
uh, when you're doing a, a job or an occupation or career or, or you're you're just not in your purpose, you're not walking in your gift, you're not walking in your purpose, in your calling, in the long run, it can be excessively depressing. Uh, and I and I'm speak. I spoke of that uh, recently in my series that I'm doing on, on about purpose, and I entitled it, "Lord, what is my purpose?" And I'm I'm doing that course series that's going to be on our our website, our webpage, thrivingonpurpose.com, uh, and we're going to put that up there. It's going to be extremely life changing, super powerful. It's a five uh, five hour five hour long teaching series on how you can find your purpose. Why? Because the importance of it cannot be understated. For a believer, a Christian, to believe that once they're saved, that their whole life is about, you know, going to church, evangelizing at work here and there, reading my Bible, staying faithful. If you think that's your purpose, you're dead wrong. God has a very specific purpose, calling, and kingdom assignment on your life. And you need to find out what it is. And, and that's what the purpose of that series is. But the point is, when we're in stagnation mode, when we're not advancing in that God-given, God-assigned purpose, it can get very depressing. And you know what? The, the devil, Satan, will do everything he can to keep a man or woman out of purpose. And he can even make you very successful to do that. Now, that is interesting because uh, there's a lot of uh, great men and women of God who found that out, that climbing the ladder of success doesn't necessarily mean happiness. And... Uh, and, and, you know, and I think the example I, I gave, uh, unfortunately, uh, of Carrie Price, I mean, you cannot be more successful than that. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, he's beloved everywhere uh, in the National Hockey League. Fans love him. He wins. Uh, he makes a lot of money, more money that, than I could ever dream of, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't want to limit God. <laughs> but the point is, highly successful individual. He's world-class at what he does. I'm not saying he's not in his purpose. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying maybe that he feels that he's not. And that being the case, that could be a cause of, of, of the problem. And, and he's not alone. There's a ton of individuals out there. This is not about Carey Price. It's about uh, saying basically that there's a ton of very highly successful people, Christians, believers, who can be depressed even if they have seemingly everything to be happy okay so uh, that's something and and you know what uh when you're in that uh stagnation mode for some of us for me uh, i remember when i was at canada post the feeling of be I, I felt like i was in prison the feeling that this was it for me that was a lie of the devil the devil kept telling me that this was it for me it wasn't going to get any better than this Salary-wise, purpose-wise, job-wise, wow, I had attained pretty much my limit there. That's what he kept telling me. And uh, that feeling of stagnation and being in prison fostered tremendous uh, depressive episodes for me. 
uh, I remember Tony Robbins said something that's very powerful. He said, action, momentum is a tremendous uh, breaker of depression. He says, if you're depressed, just go outside and start jogging. Just get your body moving. Because, and he's right, because just the, the mental or physical action of moving forward, when you're jogging or running or walking, you're moving forward from one point to another. Just that can, can, can break the cycle of melancholy. Just that. Sometimes it doesn't take much uh, exercise or moving forward or undertaking a course undertaking a class, doing something out of your ordinary comfort zone to break the cycle. I'm, I'm going to talk about the antidotes later. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, another possibility, of course, that is a possible cause of depression, mental illness. I mean, mental illness, uh, the brain is a very complex thing. There's all these chemicals that, are, that, that God put in there that sometimes can be off balance for all kinds of reasons, which I'm, like I said, I'm not a doctor in the disclaimer, uh, but, but it's interesting, all these things uh, about the mental illness possibility. But I don't want to make it into a too much of a possibility because I, I think there's, there's the mental, there's the physical, there's the situational uh, things. And I'm going to talk about also the, the spiritual realities that attach to our well-being. But for the mental, we should consider depression to be uh, a problem with possible faulty brain, uh, you know, chemical balances or wiring. There are multiple ways the brain can be wired for depression, okay? Because the brain is very sensitive to our life events. Uh, so these... these uh, Multiple ways the brain can be wired to trigger depression it would include not only necessarily genetics, but they could include that, but also traumatic events, negative thought patterns, or negative spiritual beliefs. These are all things that could wire the brain a certain way because how our behavior our thought patterns and a lot of things affect the wiring of our brains. The brain operates like a, a system of very complex highways. So the neurocircuitry of the brain is like uh, multiple roads and highways. But this circuitry is flexible. In other words, if you engage in a certain behavior every day, it creates multiple nerve, uh, not nerve, but electric charges going always going in the same direction and that reinforces the pattern in the brain and so positive behaviors positive thinking uh, these create highways that that can fortify the brain but likewise negative behaviors negative patterns can create these highways that become stronger it's like imagine um uh, someone once gave that illustration i think it was tony robbins i think it was really good he said, imagine if a thought is like a thread from one point to another, one tiny thread. That's one thought. Now, imagine if that thought is multiplied 10 times a day and every time that thought is had in your brain or, or, or channeled in your brain, a, another th tiny thread uh, goes from one point A to point B. So 
another tiny thread. Every time you think, another tiny thread. Well, eventually, the more that thought is repeated, it becomes a thought pattern. And all those tiny threads, they become very, very, very thick. And eventually, you have like a huge rope, like this is a superhighway in your brain where the thought pattern is reinforced. So if it's a negative thought pattern, well, guess what? You have a problem on your hands. You're going to be depressed. If it's a positive thought pattern, guess what? You're going to be feeling pretty good about yourself. So uh, the brain is, has that flexibility. It's a very, very complex thing. And, and uh, neuro-linguistic neuro programming uh, is it's a thing. It really is a thing. And it's, it's not because you're a Christian that you're, uh, it doesn't affect you. You're a human being. So yes, neuro-linguistic programming works in Christians too, because guess what? We have a brain as well. So uh, obviously, if you keep reading, declaring, decreeing Bible verses every day that are super positive and charged with the love of God and affirmation for your life, well, guess what? You're going to feel pretty good about yourself. But if you're you're bent on a thought that is always negative and you keep repeating that thought or saying things that you shouldn't about yourself, you're going to create negative brain patterns and waves. Okay, so I think that's enough of that. Uh, oh, here's another uh, reason for depression, another uh, possible reason. Spiritual depletion of your anointing. What they call pastoral burnout. That's the common term for it. But spiritual depletion of your anointing or running on empty spiritually. It's a thing that happens many different ways. There's, there, it, it would be hard. It would take probably a whole uh, teaching to explain. But we're each gifted with spiritual gifts. And we use them to bless the body of Christ. And when we're surrounded by people, these people need our gift. That's the way the body operates. Everybody needs the gift of everybody. And in certain circumstances, the need is greater than others. And that can siphon you spiritually. Uh, it's hard to explain, but the, the closest thing we have in the scriptures is when Jesus is, you know, remember he was walking in that crowd? And there's this woman with the, the issue of blood, right? And she's she's trying to find a way to touch Jesus because she's got this great faith that if she can just grab hold of his garment, she'll be healed, right? And there's a huge crowd and they're all pressing on Jesus like they all want a piece of him, right? But this woman's faith is so strong and so in, intentional. She grabs a hold of his garment and she's instantly healed. And what does Jesus say? Who touched me? Who touched me? I felt a power getting coming out of me. Well, spiritual depletion kind of operates the same way. I used to experience it all the time back when I was uh, very involved in, in ministry. I would go to church, and especially if I was called to teach, if I was in a, in a teaching mode, I would go to church and shake hands with a lot of people. You know, Sunday morning, it's busy. You're shaking hands. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Then I would preach. And what happens when you're the preacher that day? Well, at the end of the service, people come and see you. And thank you, preacher. Thank you, preacher. Other like, a lot of people touch you. A lot of people touch you. Uh, and it's not 
willful. They're not, they're not all out to get you. Some of them are. There are witches that infiltrate churches that are out to get you that will willfully go out of their way to shake your hand and try to, to act as energy vampires, if you will, and, and get, get uh, siphon your anointing or, or get you in a running on empty mode. And I remember I would, I would go and use my gift, my teaching gift. I would preach to the people on a Sunday, a busy, busy Sunday. And I would go home. And the depression I felt on those days was the hardest, the hardest and the darkest. And I remember reading Charles Spurgeon, who went through similar matters. And he said, because uh, someone asked him, how do you preach such powerful sermons? He says, I set myself on fire and people watch me burn or burn out. And uh, he, he would explain in one of his, uh, I think it was, it was in lectures to my students where he teaches his students uh, the ministry, basically. And he warns them of the potential depression on the Sunday after the service or the aftermath of the Sunday service. So he was basically teaching them the possibility of spiritual depletion, feeling so empty that you feel like you're siphoned. So that is a thing. And that is a possibility that can get you very highly depressed if you're a Christian. Another one of those uh, things that can get you down if you're a Christian is straight out witchcraft. I mean, I'm already mentioned that straight out witchcraft. I mean, there are witches and warlocks and occultists out there who are specifically geared to target and incapacitate believers. And that's that's the, that's what they live for. That's what that's that's their that's how they get their kicks. Uh, so straight out witchcraft. So in other words, your state of being could be a result of being targeted and you don't even know it. And sometimes this witchcraft is in your own church. You go to you go to a church, you don't even know there's there's witches there, but they there are sometimes there are witches there that that specifically do stuff that you don't even they're not even aware. So they target you from there. And now with social media, it can be on social media. So be very, very careful when you get uh, friend requests. Uh, there's some friend requests that I got. And I, I would do an, like a quick investigation. Like if you have almost no friends in common, usually that's a red flag. But sometimes you can have a lot of friends in common. So you're like, okay. But you have to investigate. You have to look into the people sending you these friend requests because sometimes there are witches out to get you. And what happens when you accept the friend request and friend back? Well, you just open the door. You just basically open the door to the potential attacks on your life, spiritual attacks. So that's very, um, very bad. Uh, and finally, another thing that I wanted to... Uh, to point out is demonic strongholds. And what do I mean by demonic strongholds? What we call generational curses. Sometimes, uh, you know, you might have had a father who was depressed and a grandfather who was depressed. And maybe you're very depressed. That was my case. That was my case. And of course, 
doctors will tell you, well, that's a genetic predisposition. They all had something wrong with their brain chemistry. So you believe that you, you grow up and you believe that. So back in the day, I was, uh, I had, I had problems. Look, I believe that when I was at my darkest point, uh, there was a lot of things spiritually going on in my life that got me there. I believe there was spiritual depletion of my anointing. I was victim of that. There might have been definitely witchcraft uh, on my life without my knowing. And uh, demonic strongholds or what we call generational curses. I had that that I needed to break off that I never did. So as a result, I, I was suffering from all these, these, these angles on so many fronts. And I didn't know how to fight back because I didn't have the knowledge to fight back. And by the way, uh, I've been teaching for an hour and 21 minutes. This is going to be a very long broadcast. Very, very long. Why? Because there's so much I, I want to tell you. Uh, but now I'm at the place where I wanted to share a clip with you guys because there's so many church and religious beliefs that we are taught in churches about depression. And uh, there was a great movie that came out in 2003 that didn't make any waves in Hollywood, of course. Uh, it was about the life of Martin Luther. If you hear some noise in the background, it's because there's thunder where I'm at. So there's a thunderstorm going now. Um, so it's from the movie Luther, which I think it was, it was Ralph Fiennes who played the part of Luther. He was a little bit skinny to play Luther, but the movie was really, really, really good. And uh, in this clip that I'm going to share with you guys, there's a young boy, maybe 13 years old, 12 years old, who committed suicide. And the scene is very powerful because it gives us great lessons about what, to, how to perceive suicide. So I just want to share that with you. I defy you, devil, you, you, you shit. I know your handiwork, you and your stinking lies. Shame, shame, shaming a mother, telling her to hide her broken child, telling a boy to kill himself. Mother Marty, the boy is damned. I'm not allowed to do this. The others won't rest with him in here. This is holy ground. He's a suicide. Tell Otto to bring his son. Tell him. According to God's justice, this boy is damned because he took his life. I say it was overcome by the devil. Is this child any more to blame for the despair that overtook him than the innocent man who was murdered by a robber in the woods?
God must be mercy. Unforgiving. That's how I saw God. Punishing us in this life, committing us to purgatory after death, sentencing sinners to burn in hell for all eternity. But I was wrong. Those who see God as angry do not see him rightly. But look upon a curtain as if a dark storm cloud has been drawn across his face. If we truly believe that Christ is our Savior, then we have a God of love. And to see God in faith is to look upon his friendly heart. So when the devil throws your sins in your face, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is there, I shall be also. I really, I remember when I saw that clip, I was like, wow. Wow, because guess what? Uh, I had been taught lies. When I was depressed, I heard all kinds of things. And, and the preachers, they mean well. The pastors, they mean well. Here's some of the religious lies, religious beliefs about depression that we hear commonly. Now, your depression is a sign of weakness a lack of willpower, or a sign of weak faith. Or, your depression is just God's way of testing you and your faith. Yeah, God is going to induce a depression on you to test you. He's like that, right? He's God of love. Another one is, your depression is punishment for unconfessed sins. Again, the vengeful God, the... the, the, the you know, your depression is self-pity. If you're depressed, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. Kind of means basically you're weak. Another one uh, is you're a disappointment to God and a bad Christian. Believe it or not, at my lowest state, when I was depressed, I was told by my pastor at the time that I was willfully hurting the body of Christ. And of course, when you're depressed, you're not a you're a disagreeable person. You're not a you're not fun to be around. Obviously, right? You're depressed. But the last thing you need to hear is that you're willfully hurting the body of Christ. So, 
if if a believer close to you is depressed okay i hear i'm going to tell you what to not do if a believer close to you is depressed number one obviously don't make him feel guilty that is anything but love stuff like you're a christian you can't be depressed right only only fake christians or real christians don't get depressed or where is your faith where's your faith dude like if you had faith you wouldn't be depressed uh, Spurgeon said this, and I think that was interesting. He said, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. The very loss of joy and the absence of assurance may be accompanied by the greatest advancement in the spiritual life. And I have found that to be true in my own life, that my depressive states, while, while greatly debilitating God could still use that for great depth of thought and and uh, great depth of uh, spiritual. <laughs> That's my dog who's kind of freaking out because there's thunder out there. Yeah, another thing you should avoid doing when someone you know is depressed is to preach to them or throw Bible verses left and right. Like don't show up at their place with a list of Bible verses to quote unquote, encourage them. I mean, I know Bible verses can encourage and they should be, but they should be used wisely, compassionately. And you shouldn't get there with a list of Bible verses because then the person might feel judged or they might feel um, not judged. I shouldn't say judged, but they might feel like you're 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 dumping all that on them, like basically like shake it off kind of thing. Here's what the Bible says. Now shake it off. So share it, share the Bible with grace and with great discernment. I'm going to tell you my own personal story. I uh, I had lost my daughter. It was one of the worst times of my life. Um, I, I had a stillborn child, a, a young daughter, Jennifer. And uh, she was born uh, and she didn't survive. She she maybe survived maybe 15 seconds, 15, a minute outside the womb. And uh, it was a great, great loss for me and Elizabeth. And it brought about tremendous depressive states and melancholy. And the pastor wanted to, at the time, our pastor, he wanted to help and he meant well. So he shows up at our house to do some pastoral counseling. And... Um, well, it, it was, like I said, he, he meant well. He wanted to share with me a Bible verse. And he's saying, I want to tell you about the story of Jeremiah and, and this and that. And he's basically, I know where he's going because I heard it before. And that's the worst part. I knew this stuff. As, a, as an avid student of the scriptures, I knew this stuff. I had read this stuff. I had even memorized the verses. So before he can finish his sentence, I go like, you want to quote to me from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. And then I start quoting the verse to him. And I remember him looking at me like, and he says, yeah, I believe it was in Lamentations. He wasn't even sure himself. And it was so awkward because in my heart of hearts, I knew he was trying his best to, com to comfort me. 
using the scriptures. But I was basically telling him, I know this scripture. I've read it many times. It's not helping me right now. And as a pastor, I can only imagine how he, he must have felt. And it was very awkward, very awkward for both of us. Another thing you want to avoid if you know someone who is undergoing a, a depressive episode, don't tell them to fix the problem with more busyness, getting more busy. So working more hours or finding a second job or, or, or getting busy or dizzy, you know, the, the dizziness of busy. Sometimes it can be a thing that we go to as a way to cope. Um, when my daughter, again, when my, my daughter died, that's what I did. I, I, I went into busy, dizzy mode. I tried to make myself more busy. I undertook all kinds of renovation projects in my house and all kinds of stuff just to, just to make myself dizzy. Guess what? It didn't work and it caught up with me real bad and even worse than the initial state I was in. So, so you need to, uh, uh, activities overload is not a solution, okay? Now I want to talk about the solutions. <laughs> the moment you might have been waiting for this whole time, like he's been talking close to two hours. What's the solution when you're depressed? Well, there's, there's many solutions. See, there's not one solution. There's not a fix-all thing. And I wish I could just say, well, keep your eyes on Jesus. And yes, obviously, that's the obvious response that most preachers would use, right? Um, remind yourself of God's promises. Yes, of course. But, but I want to give you something more complete, something that... That you because it's a combination of many things, and some of these things aren't that big. Some of these are super small, others are bigger. So I'm going to give you the list of what I found from experience and from research and from studying this, what I found really works. And I like this quote by comedian Ricky Gervais. Gervais, I don't know how they pronounce it in English. Ricky Gervais. He said, "Telling someone with depression to just pull themselves together is about as useful." as telling someone with cancer to just stop having cancer. And that's true. I mean, and there's people who mean well, and most of those people who say, pull yourself together, man. Those people usually are not the usual temperament who deals with depression. I mean, there's, there's different temperaments. And there's temperaments who are more prone. Usually introverts are more prone to depressive episodes than extroverts. Extroverts... Uh, I'm not saying they're immune. I know some extroverts who've had depressive episodes uh, and it happens. They're human beings, right? But usually the introverts are more prone to having depressive episodes. So here's some of the best cures that I've learned about, that I've learned throughout the years that really, that can really help lift the depression, okay? There's a lot of things I mentioned but you're going to see there's a lot of possible solutions because it's a multifaceted problem. One of the best ones is to get rid of perverse thinking. And what do I mean by perverse thinking? Well, I mentioned earlier what the religious will tell you the depression is, right? They, they tell you it's a sin. They tell you it's God punishing you. They tell you to the... Um, to get to snap out of it. Uh, they tell you that you're hurting the body of Christ. I mean, all these things are perverse thinking. And Jesus said the truth will set you free, not perverse religious thinking. And see, the, the, the problem with perverse religious thinking is it comes disguised, uh, disguised as truth. 
Oftentimes it comes from your pastor or it can come from a, an experienced Christian or a well-meaning Christian friend. So it, it's disguised under a religious a spirit. And it's oftentimes you, you, you can mistake it for the truth, but it's not. The truth will set you free, but religious perverse thinking will put you in deeper bondage. So get rid of perverse thinking. God is love. You're his child. He wants you free from this. He doesn't want you depressed. He wants to heal your soul as uh, as well as your um, your spirit and your body. He doesn't want you ill in any way. Another thing you can do is pause and reflect. Now, <laughs> this is delicate. This is like a double-edged sword. Don't reflect on the bad stuff. You know, pull a, a Philippians 4, 8, like whatever is pure, just, good, holy. Think on those things. You want to think on the good stuff. Take a positive inventory of your life. Count your blessings. And another thing you can do in the pause and reflect, it, 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 never have a condemning voice to, towards yourself. But as you pause and reflect, see this as, okay, maybe it's time for me to assess where I'm at in my life. Why am I feeling this way? Is there something that I could potentially do to get out of this? But I know that this is not easy, and this should be done with the help of a, a good, gifted, and godly counselor, okay? But pausing and reflecting can really help. Another thing that can really help is, and that's one of the biggest things, that's one of the greatest things you can do, reading, decreeing, and declaring God's promises daily, multiple times a day. Now, you remember when I told you about my episode, my darkest episode, I had these Bible verses, great verses, super encouraging. But I would just, I pasted them on my wall and I read them, but I read them with my eyes. I read them like, you know, like a Baptist. <laughs> I read them like a Baptist. I didn't read them like a Pentecostal or charismatic. Read them out loud. Decree them. Say them out loud. Bring God into it. Put, put your heart into it. Sing them if you have to. And do it multiple times a day. It's God's word. It will not come back to him uh, void. So as you say it out loud, you're returning it to the Lord. It's going to accomplish that which it was sent forth. Okay? You can, have, you can bank on that. Another thing you can do is take every thought captive. When you're in that state, a lot of your thoughts need to be taken captive. And there's going to be a lot firing on all cylinders. Bad thoughts. Take them captive to Christ. And I know it's not easy. And I know you. it, it probably is a, an overwhelming mountain at this point. But it's still something you need to be aware of. And, and to try, at least, to do that. And I know sometimes it's just very hard. Another thing you definitely need to do when you're in these depressive episodes is shed the guilt. Get rid of the guilt. You, you did no wrong for feeling this way. And that's something that most of us have such a hard time with when we're feeling like that. Not only are we feeling like crap, but we're feeling like crap for feeling like crap. Don't do this to yourself. You did no wrong for feeling this way. So get rid of the guilt, okay? Another, another super, super important thing you need to do is talk to people who love you about how you're feeling. If you're married, 
tell your spouse, sit down and say, I need your comprehension and your help right now. It can be a, a, a trusted family member, a friend. Sit down with some trusted people, godly people, who can listen to your heart. You need to talk about it. You need to tell people, hey, I, I need help. I'm not feeling good. And here's what I'm feeling right now. Okay. Now, another thing that you can do is seek help. Now, this is very important. Seek help from a trusted and experienced pastor, Bible, uh, biblical counselor, biblical psychologist, or a deliverance minister. I don't know your background. Okay. I don't know your, your church background. You might not believe in deliverance ministry, but I'm still mentioning it because for so many people, it is a demonic entity causing them pain or multiple sometimes demonic entities. It could be a generational curse. These are all things I didn't know back then. And it just prolonged the agony for years. So knowledge is power. But the point is there's multiple possibilities of why you're feeling like this. It could be demonic. I'm not saying it absolutely is demonic. And again, let's get back to the guilt, the, the guilt thing. If it is demonic, don't feel guilty about it, okay? Demons are like catching a cold. There's a lot of people who have demons, okay? So so you can't torture yourself saying, oh, if I have a demon on top of that, I no, 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 no. You just need help, okay? So go to the help that you trust. It could be your pastor. It could be a, a, a Christian counselor. Or it could be a deliverance minister, okay? So these are options. And I'm putting them out there for you to consider, prayerfully consider. Here's one that might seem a little bit simplistic. Exercise. I talked earlier about going out and jogging. Well, exercise gets your, your, your body moving. And just the fact that you're getting your body moving and blood circulation and blood flowing to your brain can have an impact, a positive impact on your well-being. So exercise is not to be... Uh, seen as trivial, it can really make a big difference. Here's another one that seems maybe trivial or foolish. Try smiling more. Try smiling more. It's proven that if if you if you make the exercise of smiling, forcing yourself to smile, and I'm not saying looking stupid, but if you force yourself to smile more, you're you're creating. Uh, the muscle memory and the and the the, the uh, uh, a mood you're activating a mood, so this as simplistic as it sounds can help you. Here's another one: fresh air, sunlight. Don't stay indoors. Don't do like I did. Uh, stay on your bed all day, staring at the ceiling. Not a good idea. Get some fresh air, sunlight. Sunlight has vitamin D. Vitamin D is proven to be a mood enhancer. That's why when it rains all the time, you get gloomy. So fresh air and sunlight, proven ways to help depression. Associate yourself with prayer partners who care and understand. Okay? So if you have some good prayer partners who care and understand, who are willing to fight this off with you, 
to intercede with you. If there's an intercessor in your church, someone who's gifted with intercessory prayer, and who will not judge you, man, you need that person in your corner, okay? Treat yourself. That's another one that might seem simplistic. Treat yourself. Of course, I'm talking in moderation. Don't go out and buy a Corvette. I was talking earlier about that. Some people just go out and buy a Corvette. No, no. But treat yourself. If you, if you like a certain type of food, if you like a certain type of burger or pizza or ice cream, and I'm not saying go get it every day or multiple times a day, you got to go in moderation. You don't want to make yourself sick. But treating yourself once in a while might help to alleviate the mood, even if it's just a little bit. Vitamin B. I have found vitamin B to be truly amazing. Uh, now I, I don't suffer from severe depression anymore, but I still have, you know, the, the usual blues that, that people can encounter, especially during the winter months. I found that if I go too many days without taking vitamin B, my mood tends to go downwards. And what's amazing about vitamin B is it also energizes you. So you take vitamin B, it gives you an energy boost and a mood boost at the same time. So I like really, I really like vitamin B. Another thing that you can take is St. John's wort. St. John's wort. Uh, this I have found can help your mood if you are depressed. So it's, it's something that you can uh, uh, maybe talk to your doctor about or, or consider trying if you're feeling this is plant-based. So it's not, I don't think it's toxic anyway, in moderation. So take it according to what is said on the bottle. Here's another thing that you might have considered, petting your pets. If you have a cat or a dog, or if you have access to a cat or a dog, someone who has a, petting a, a, an animal is mood enhancing and it's proven. That's why there's zoo therapy. That's why they created that because they realized that people who are surrounded with animals, it can help their moods. So if you have a dog, pet your dog more. If you have a cat, pet your cat more, all right? Here's another one. Do a good deed of your choosing. A good deed of your choosing. Why do I say or specify of your choosing? Well, again, I'm talking from my own experience. I was in this bad depressive state and the church would pull on me for ministry activities and duties. And I felt like I had to do it. And if I didn't do it, I was a bad Christian. So I wasn't like a religious works kind of program. It was very toxic. But when I say a good deed of you choosing, don't do it because you're pulled on. Someone's pulling on you. Choose a good deed that you go and do. It's going to help you. And here's why. When we do something good for another human being, this actually boosts serotonin and dopamine chemicals in your brain, which are neurotransmitters in your brain that give you feelings of satisfaction and well-being and cause the pleasure or reward centers in your brain to light up. It gives you pleasure. Endorphins, which are your body's natural painkiller, also can be released. So can imagine that doing good deeds for someone else. So find someone in a worse state than you are. You're severely depressed. You're maybe even con contemplating suicide. I hope not. I hope not. But if you're feeling like that, doing a good deed for someone else. If it's something that you choose, if you're like, you know what? I know such and such needs this and that. I'm going to just 
push myself and go do that. It might not seem like much, but it could do a big difference in your mood. Now, here's another one that you might find surprising. Hug someone you love or ask someone you love to hug you. If you have children, if you have a spouse, a mom, a dad, a hug. Did you know during a hug, we release oxytocin, which is a hormone that relaxes us and lowers anxiety. It's sovereign, it, 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 oxytocin is often called the cuddle hormone, the cuddle hormone. And when it's released during a 20 second hug, and when I say hug someone, 20 second, if you have to count it, okay, it can effectively a 20-second hug can effectively lower blood pressure and reduce the stress hormone norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Sometimes I, I when I'm blue, I'm going to tell Liz, come over here. And she looks at me and say, I need a hug. And she goes like, oh, not right now. I don't have time because Lizzie's is not a, I'm a, I'm a cuddle, uh, I'm a cuddle bear. I just love hugs all the time. Liz is not so much. <laughs> But then I grab her and I say, 20 seconds, you can do it. <laughs> and I tease her about it. But she knows that when I do that, it's I, I really do need it. And you know what? It works because I'm just blue, right? I'm not, I'm not deep, deep, deep in a deep pit. But it does work. A hug. And it doesn't seem like much, but it does work. Put on some worship. That's another one here. Put on some worship music on your TV screen or on the radio or on anything you listen music with. Worship, good, wholesome worship music. It's going to clear the air. If, there, if there's some demonic oppression affecting you and keeping you in that depressed state, worshiping God can really help you to break that off. So worship music and you singing along and maybe putting it with the, if you if you have a big screen TV like I do, and you put it on YouTube with the lyrics, you can sing at the same time. This can really help you break off a depressive spell, okay? And, and then when I say depressive spell, it sometimes it really is that just that, a depressive spell. Here's another one. Spend time in nature. Guess what? When God created Adam, he didn't put him in a city. The first city was built by Cain. I mean, that should give you a clue about how wholesome a city is, right? So if you live in the city and you're feeling like that, it might be a good idea to go to a park where there's trees or or maybe a, a river or outside in the suburbs or the city, uh, not the city or, or the rural areas where there's woods and, and a nice little place where you can just go relax and hear the birds chirp. Spend some time in nature because man was created and put in a garden. He was not created and put in a city. So sometimes just reconnecting with God's creation can really make you feel a lot better. And here's one uh, you might not want to have the kids around for this one. But uh, have sex with your spouse. The, 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 act, the activity of, of uh, the marital union and, and being intimate with your spouse might help release some level of positive hormones 
it, it, it might make you feel better and break off a bad, uh, a bad depressive state. So having sex, I know it sounds, sometimes you just, when you're really, really depressed, you really don't feel like it. Uh, and that's understandable, but sometimes it might be a good idea to put yourself in the mood, you know, put yourself in the mood. And uh, even if your spouse might feel like, well, you're so negative these days, I don't want to be with you. That That's a possibility to you. You have to, you know, discern, be, be smart about it, like talk it over, discuss it and, and engage it in that. If it's going to help you, that would be a good, a good idea. Here's something that a, a man once told me, and I thought it was so good. He said, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Whatever you're going through, if you're listening to this and you're, you're depressed, severely depressed, maybe suicidal, remember that you don't want to engage in something that's permanent for something that, to, to solve something that's temporary. No matter what state we are, we are in, we need to keep in mind, as dark as it may seem right now, this too shall pass. It's only temporary. So never forget that. I'm going to share some quotes with you that, that uh, are from the scriptures and other sources that could encourage you if you're in a bad mood. These, these quotes I really, in, uh, I really think are great from the scriptures, some and others. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves, and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Albert Einstein said, there are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. And the other is as though everything is a miracle. Remember earlier I told you to count your blessings. That's pretty much what it means. If you take the time to count your blessings, you're going to start seeing all the miracles surrounding you. And this could lift your spirits. Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And the Lord reminds the, reminded us in Matthew 28 also of that. He says, behold, I am with you every day until the end of the age. We're in the end of the age right now. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I believe we're in the end of the age. I believe we're in the end times. And uh, it's we're told in the scriptures that, I think it's in Daniel. It says that the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, the Antichrist will, will uh, wear out the saints wear out the saints and i think the word wear out the, the, the term implicates such a fatigue a weariness of soul and a lot of us for the last two years now we've seen the world completely change before our eyes and a lot of people 
Non-believers and believers alike have been depressed when they consider what is going on in the world. So obviously, the level of discouragement has gone up. And I just wanted to say that. Remember the promise of Jesus Christ who said, I will be with you every day until the end of the age. And guess what happens at the end of the age? He comes back. He's going to be even more with us. Okay? And he's going to rule. So we're reminded that he's there with us every day. Charles Spurgeon, him again, a great quote here. Before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. And... And this is a powerful quote because you might be undergoing right now a depressive episode. Tell yourself, you know what? Maybe I'm feeling this way because something great is just around the corner. Maybe I'm going to have a breakthrough that's going to completely rewire my life. Maybe that's why the devil's attacking me so hard. So before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. And might I add to that? After any great achievement, be on guard. After any great achievement, likewise, some measure of depression is very usual. I have found that in my life and I know others as, as well. So be on guard when you accomplish something fantastic. Remember Elijah, right? On Mount Carmel, absolute incredible miracle of God, super victory against the prophets of Baal. 10 points for the home team, and boom. He he just nose-dived into the dumps big time. It was really bad. John 16.33, we read this. It's Jesus speaking. I have told you these things so that you, uh, so, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, here's a quote by Stefan Holler. I don't know him, so I have no idea, okay, who he is. But I love the quote. He said, a pearl is a beautiful thing that is produced by an injured life. It is the tear that results from the injury of the oyster. The treasure of our being in this world is also produced by an injured life. If we had not been wounded, if we had not been injured, then we will not produce the pearl. How well said. You know, you look at the great achievers in history, in life, those who impacted humanity for the better, Christian or not, you look at their lives, oftentimes there was great depression there. So don't give up. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. Now, that was the passage that the pastor came to share with me when my daughter had died. And, and, and it was, like I said, it was so awkward because I knew it almost by heart at the time. I kind of forgot it since then, but uh, I didn't need to recite it as much, I, I suppose. But I remember I quoted it almost verbatim to him, and he was like, oh, okay. So in other words, he was like, oh, he knows this. Well, Knowing it, 
and believing it are two things. And when we're going through the ringer, um, we need to declare this again and again. And that's the thing I didn't do. And that's why I suffered so greatly. I didn't declare the words of God. They didn't come through my lips. And there's such power when they come through our lips and back into our ears and down into our hearts. I said, my strength has perished along with my expectation from Yahweh. Remember my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the bitterness. My soul still remembers them and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. So in other words, he's showing how he's feeling. But then he's saying, this I recall to my mind when I'm feeling like this. Therefore, I have hope. It is because of Yahweh's loving kindnesses, plural, that we are not consumed. Other versions say uh, God's uh, mercies, tender mercies. It is because of God's tender mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassion doesn't fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning, God's compassions are new. The bank account is full for a withdrawal if we will believe for it, if we will call for it, declare for it, pray for it. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul says this, one of, one of my favorite passages. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's love. Nothing can separate us from the, the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Something great to remind ourselves and to say out loud as we are not uh, when we're in this bad mood. Remember, the Lord is an ever-present help in times of trouble, and he uses people made into his image a lot. So when you're depressed, do not self-isolate. Do not, do not, I repeat, do not self-isolate. Seek help. Have the courage to seek help. Even if everything around you screams, isolate yourself. Seek help. And speaking of help, I wanted to give you guys some possible uh, places you can seek help. One is called Depression Outreach. So these are ministries I'm going to list to you. So you might want to take notes. If you or someone you love is undergoing a difficult time, you might want to take these notes uh, down. Depression Outreach is found at depressionoutreach.com. The phone number is 971-231-4131, depressionoutreach.com. This organization offers seminars and a variety of resources related to depression. Uh, by the way, these were recommended by Focus on the Family. Uh, so, you know, use them at, at your 
discernment, pray into it, ask the Lord to guide you. Another one is Fresh Hope. Fresh Hope. So freshhope.us. That's the website. Freshhope.us. The phone number is 402-932-3089. 402-932-3089. And the website again is freshhope.us. And finally, another one is called uh, Mental Health Grace Alliance. Mental Health Grace Alliance. So the website is mentalhealthgracealliance.org. So mentalhealthgracealliance.org. And the phone number is 254-235-0616. Let me repeat that again. 254-235-0616. So this particular group provides recovery programs, support groups, training, and collaborative partnerships to help positively impact mental health care. And do not forget, if you happen to be either a Pentecostal or charismatic, or even if you're not, you know, if, if you're at your wit's end, I strongly recommend uh, to find a godly and anointed deliverance minister, someone who, who knows what they're doing, who has experience in that, to go and meet with them, pray with them, open up, counsel, have them counsel you and, uh, and pray with them and, and ask them to help you. So obviously this needs to be bathed in prayer so, like I said, reach out and ask for help. I'm sure that in your church, your family, uh, friends, there's always people that are very close that we can reach out to when we are feeling this way. I hope and pray. This has been a very hard teaching for me to give you guys. Uh, I hope and pray that this video has blessed you. I hope and pray that has has provided you with answers, with encouragement, uh, with resources as well, and that you will um, that you will consider everything that I said tonight. Um, I just want to pray. I just want to close in prayer uh, because this is something that's so close to my heart. This, this has been something that's been a, a year and a half in the works. This uh, broadcast, and of course. Um, it touches home very closely for me. And I just wanted to pray for anyone listening to this broadcast right now and uh, offer, I just want to pour myself out for you guys tonight. So Lord Jesus, uh, Father God, I pray that if anyone right now listening is listening to this, I pray there is a verse, a sentence, a phrase, an encouragement, a solution that was offered in this two-hour broadcast that you can use to bring them out of the pit. I ask for your grace. I ask for your compassion on your people who may be undergoing, anyone who may be undergoing right now uh, these difficulties. I pray off any demonic strongholds, any generational strongholds of depression, Upon any one of my listeners right now, I pray it off and I 
cut it off at the root in Jesus' mighty name. I pray off and cast off any oppression so that the clouds over the minds of those listening might dissipate and that the person listening who needs your touch of grace might be available to receive it. And I pray your mighty power to come and break off any thoughts of suicide or any evil, wicked thoughts that the enemy might have given anyone right now at this point. I break those off in Jesus' mighty name. I plead the blood of Jesus on my listeners. I plead the blood of Jesus on anyone listening right now that they may be uh, brought back from the pit in Jesus' mighty name that your mighty hand, God, might take them out right now. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. I hope this broadcast has uh, blessed you. If it has, and you know that someone you know needs to hear this, do not hesitate. Share it. Uh, share it with loved ones. Share it with people. Share it with churches. Share it with anyone who might need to take a hold of this teaching and learn from it because it could save a life. You know, my ministry, Thriving on Purpose, the, our ministry, my wife and I, we want to teach people about purpose. We want them to thrive in life and to, to be a powerful kingdom ambassadors. But uh, this broadcast, I strongly believe, can do more than impact a life. It can save a life. It can literally save a life and more than one. So if you know anyone who is in need right now of hearing this message, I urge you and I beg you to share this broadcast because it could definitely save a life. Um, so I wish you all the best. God bless you. If you, you want to find more resources, make sure you stop by at thrivingonpurpose.com where uh, we're, we're going to make more resources available uh, shortly in the coming weeks. I'm working on this uh, teaching series on purpose entitled, Lord, What is My Purpose? This could definitely lift up many, many spirits as well and, and bring people into alignment with their kingdom call, a calling and a, an assignment and uh, bring them to a new level in their lives. So obviously there's going to be that. Um, I just pray that this has blessed you, and uh, I, I will see you next week. God bless.